Welcome to the Unleash Your Blog podcast. I am your host, John Meese from johnmeese.me. This show is designed to help you build a profitable online business from your blog, even if you can only spare 30 minutes each day. Every week, you'll be getting a behind the scenes look at what strategies are working right now for real life bloggers, people just like you. Are you ready? Let's unleash your blog together. Hey everyone, this is Ryan Estabrooks, producer and editor of the Unleash Your Blog podcast. And today we have a special bonus episode for you all. Recently, John taught a seminar called Seven Ways to Monetize Your Blog, where he breaks down some very cool ways to make money from your website. Since we love the Unleash Your Blog audience so much, we thought we would record it and share it with you all so you don't feel left out. It's a pretty in-depth seminar with a fair amount of Q&A, so this episode will run a little longer than usual. So feel free to get comfortable. (laughs) Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you in part by Notable Themes, a company that I helped create to help new bloggers launch professional websites without having to mess with the technical side of online business. Notable Themes is the only place you will find sleek and simple WordPress themes, plugins, as well as hosting services all in one place. That means we are your one-stop shop for building a blog-based business online, whether you are just starting out from scratch or optimizing what you already have. Get started today by heading to yournotabletheme.com. So today we're going to be talking about seven different ways to monetize your blog with a personal brand. Now, it may be possible, there's another way I haven't thought about or included in this, but I've tried really hard to pick categories. Now, um, I'll have specific examples, but I'll start by having a category um, of different ways that other people have already shown you can monetize a blog in a personal brand. I'll have examples of each one of these, um, and actually all seven of these are revenue streams or ways to monetize a blog that I've had experience with now, either through my own blog, which I probably, you know, probably I'd, off the top of my head, say three or four of these um, strategies I've used myself, or with clients I've, so I'll be happy, and I know Neil has a bunch of experience with a bunch of these too, so we'll be happy to talk about questions or specific, uh, specific tactics or examples um, at the end. Um, But I'll plan to just go through each one of these and kind of give an overview of what strategies you should do if you're interested in using any one of these. So I will say I'm coming from the assumption in this that you have some interest in building an income from your blog. So just a quick note on that. I think that while it's true that a blog doesn't have to have to be a business, some people just look at a blog as a as a creative expression. Well, this is the Nashville Bloggers Meetup, and most people I know that actually refer to themselves or want or desire to refer to themselves as a blogger, in some ways are interested in it becoming a way of life or a part of their identity. And that's where I come at it from, you know, the business perspective to say, like, if it's going to be a way of life, it's going to be if you are a blogger, then as long as you like to eat and sleep indoors, you should learn how to make money from your blog. Um, even when you're just getting started out, I think it's really important just in the first couple of months to learn how to make a little bit of money from your blog to offset costs like domains and hosting, but also as soon as you cross that point where you've made your first 10, 15, or even $100 from your blog, something in your mind switches and you treat it like a business. Um, for those of you that have crossed this mark, there's a, there's a total transformation between, I mean, I know I blogged for a long time, probably a couple years before I generated more than 100 bucks. Because in my mind, it was always, oh, it's going to be a business one day, but I'm just, you know, I'm just blogging, I'm just writing. But once I started generating an income from it, I realized the potential, it changed the entire way I approached my blog. So every blog post I wrote was more strategic. I started serving my audience with the long-term and short-term game in mind. So I've been very intentional about in which order we'll go through these seven, and I don't imagine that any of them will be incredibly 
revolutionary of the tool. I've never heard of them before um, because these are examples of ways that people today do make incomes from a blog, income from a blog. But I will go through them and I've, I've been really intentional about if you're just getting started or if you know someone who's just getting started, this, in my opinion, is the order in which, if I were to go back and start over, the order in which I would introduce each revenue stream. And at the end, I'll actually share um, an example, example timeline that I, I would use now with coaching clients um, to help guide them through when to introduce each of the revenue streams. One other point I'll make. There are seven different primary revenue streams or ways to monetize your blog, but that doesn't mean that you ever need all seven, right? I'm, I'm a huge fan of Gregory McEwen. Um, how many of you have read of the book Essentialism? A few of you, or one of you? Okay, Neil. <laughs> well, sorry, it's a great book. You need to all go read it, but it's all about less but better. And the, the benefit that comes from having a narrow focus and being excellent in execution. And so in this case, I would say that I'm gonna share with you seven revenue streams, but I don't really expect you or desire you to leave here with a plan to implement all seven revenue streams into your business tomorrow or next week or next year. And I've been most successful by finding the two to three revenue streams that I just, that I want to focus on. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and go through these one by one, get, talk a little bit about each, and I'll share some of the pros and cons of each revenue stream, because there are, of course, costs associated with different uh, ways to make money online. But then what I'd encourage you to do, because I really want this to be a discussion, is on each way to monetize your blog, each revenue stream as we go through it, please raise your hand or stop me or just shout out, hey you. If you have some kind of either question or an example you'd like to add, this is, I mean, I'm, I've got slides, but it's just me and roughly 15 of you. Like we're, we're, you know, we're, we're here to have a discussion about this topic. So feel free to stop me at any point if you have a question or comment. All right, so the first revenue stream that I wanna talk about is paid services. Now I specifically said paid services to be a little bit broad here because I think this, in my mind, this could include coaching consulting or freelance services. And those are the three main categories that I've seen bloggers use their personal brand to actually monetize what they're doing. So uh, Neil, for example, Neil offers both coaching. Well, I think you actually, I would say you include some variation of all three, coaching, consulting, and freelance. And the way I usually defer, uh, differentiate them is coaching is me telling you what to do. You know, me like helping you, like usually starts with me asking you a lot of questions, getting to know what's going on in your life, your business, but then giving you advice and then you going and executing. Consulting, um, in my terminology, it would involve us more of the working side by side. So this might be like an ongoing project. It might be something, someone coming in and saying, they're asking you questions, you're giving them advice, but you're also helping them in some way in execution, even if it's just guiding them through the, the actual steps of the process. And freelance is more of a done for you type thing. Like most people are familiar with the term freelance in relation to designers or editors or even writers. <laughs> but all of those would fit under the category of paid services. Now this example I have over here is uh, actually the easiest and fastest way to introduce paid services into your personal brand business strategy, which is this is a screenshot of my Clarity profile. Clarity.fm is a platform that lets you very easily, it just works like a social media platform that you set up your profile, except the difference is it's built around selling your expertise. And so you, in this case, you can see I've got an area of expertise says, let's grow your online business. Says, let's talk online business strategy, craft a strategic plan that will set you on the path to success. And people can click through there and then book, and people do. I, I actually don't promote this Clarity page as much as when I first launched it, but I still get every month, someone will schedule a call with me and I've continually raised my rates and it, it clearly automatically handles scheduling the meetings, automatically billing per minute 
the time someone's on the phone with you asking your advice. And it also clearly is coaching because while someone, I mean, the only way they can contact you after they schedule a call is literally you both call the same conference line number, you jump on, you talk. And so it's very much, um, this is beneficial. I guess I am speaking from the perspective of having done many client arrangements that there is something nice about having the boundary set for you because expectation management is one of the things that comes in very quickly the more you get into client projects because everyone wants more and more and more for the same price or maybe cheaper. So I think paid services, the, the biggest <laughs> pro and the reason why I usually recommend starting with them is the fact that it's instant execution, right? You don't need to produce anything to do this because all you're doing is you're giving away your time and your expertise. And at this point, as you're launching your blog, you should have some sort of expertise in something that you're sharing. And maybe it's an expertise you're developing as you go through. But if you identify the problem that you solve for your audience, then it should be natural for you to be able to offer some sort of way for them to engage with you and, wa and walk <coughs> through that and get access to you through this. You don't have to use clarity, it's just simply an example. I think the biggest cons of paid services are the fact that it's a massive time suck it, because I mean, literally what you're selling is your time. And by default, that also means that it can't scale. Uh, you only have so many hours in a day. You only have so many hours in a week. And most of us have other responsibilities when we're getting started blogging, like a full-time job or full-time family responsibilities. That means you can't give away every hour, no matter how much they pay. So uh, I do know people that have built their entire business model around, around coaching and consulting. So it is, it's valid, but if you do that, you have to know that you're giving away a mass amount of your time and attention, and it can be very draining. So you just have to know what you're getting yourself into. That said, I typically recommend that people start by offering some sort of paid service almost immediately within the first month for two reasons. One, it provides an opportunity for your audience to reward you for whatever transformation you're making in their life. So even whether or not you don't have to be concerned about how many people take it. Just the fact that you've offered that opportunity, that means that now they immediately perceive that you are a business person. Uh, Michael Hyatt is a friend and mentor of mine who has been blogging for a long time. And the first several years he was blogging, he was writing posts almost, almost daily, and he never had a single product or a single ad anywhere on his website. And the first time he tried to sell a product, he got massive pushback. But to his audience were like, oh, you sell out, right? What they were saying was, you've been giving us your soul for hours every week. How dare you expect something in return? So personally, I prefer to set the terms up front, right? You can read my content for free. You can listen to my podcast for free. But I'm creating opportunities for you to go deeper and get a deeper transformation. And in doing so, I'm also making it clear that this is a business. I expect to actually make some money from what I'm doing here, right? We all like to eat and sleep indoors, so. So paid services is the easiest execution, um, and I think that it's a natural way. When you're building a personal brand, it's, it's a natural extension of that and the easiest way to, the easiest revenue stream to introduce. Yes, I'm sorry? Oh, this platform? Uh, this platform is called clarity.fm. So you can go to clarity.fm slash John Meese, for example, to see an example of uh, my profile here. And there's a, it's, it's been around for several years, so it's languished in, I'd say, popularity from when it first launched, but there are people like Mark Cuban and other like, you know, famous like, investors or venture capital advisors who are on there, and they charge like, you know, they, they charge, like $100 a minute or $200 a minute and stuff like that. So like, you know, some, there are some people that it's, it's, it's a little, some of them are a little extreme, 
But there are also people that are just getting started that charge a dollar a minute or things like that. Just um, and I've had people schedule 15 minute calls with me, and I've had people schedule an hour hour long calls. Um, and then you can mention like like there's, it also automatically handles uh, reviews and testimonials. So down here it says. Uh, I was only on the phone with John for 30 minutes. He offered great advice on podcasting, both from a technical perspective and a strategic perspective, worth the cash. And I didn't ask him to write that. Literally, like every time someone schedules a meeting, when they're done, Clarity emails them and says, hey, can you leave a review on the call that you just did? And so that's, I mean, and that appears publicly on my profile. So any other questions about paid services? Okay, let's move on. So the second would be affiliate income. Now, this is where I would say my, my strategy differs from some people online in that I really think affiliate income needs to be one of the first uh, revenue streams that you introduce. And the main reason is uh, not just because it's a quick and easy way to make money, but because when you offer, when you, what you're doing with affiliate income, when you approach that as a business strategy, is you are accepting the ability to present to your audience a product or a service that is a much higher quality than you at your current scale can otherwise provide. So when I'm teaching people about blogging, for example, on my business, my blog is about, it's a blog about blogging. It's a specifically, it's how to build into your online business in 30 minutes a day. And I know that when you're building a blog, you need to build an email list and you need to email your people. Now it's true. I could go into a cave with a bunch of funding and a bunch of money and I could hire a team and we could somehow come out with an email marketing software three years from now that might be kind of functional, right? And you could do that. Like if I wanted to just create the product for you, I could do that. Or I could find a product that already exists that's doing $7 million in annual revenue that's doing, has a team of 20 to 30 people, half of whom are developers, who are doing an amazing job every day maintaining and updating their software, who cares about their product and wants to be a software company. And I could offer that to my, to my same subscriber and say, hey, here is a done for you product. It's better than anything I could provide for you right now. Now, as, a, as an aside, as a win, I get a little cut. I get an affiliate income, that's essentially, how I look at affiliate income is it's an extension of the products that I offer to my audience. I, affiliate products that I recommend, I hold them to a similar level to the products that I would create myself to sell to my audience. Because from the audience's perspective, it's the same thing. If they, like ConvertKit for example, which is the example I include up here, uh, that's the email marketing software that I recommend. It's one that I've used for a long time now and I'm actually one of their top 10 affiliates. So I've, I've recommended them for a long time. But ConvertKit is essentially just part of my product suite. Like I don't own them, I'm not a shareholder, I'm just an affiliate. But as far as my subscriber is concerned, they found ConvertKit through me, so if they have a problem with ConvertKit, they associate that with me. So I do recommend being very careful and selective in what affiliate products you do select, but if you get clear from the beginning on what is the problem you help your audience solve, what is the transformation you create in their life, then, then the next question is, okay, well, to make that transformation happen, what products do they need? Now notice the difference is there, I didn't start with, okay, what affiliate products have the greatest commission, right? Like that's, you can't start there, you can't. You have to start with what does your audience need? And in my case, specifically me, my audience are people who are interested in building an online business from their blog, right? I know to do that, based on my experience, they need to build an email list. Now, if I were someone who was just blogging about marriage, for example, and my blog was all about how to improve your relationship with your spouse, and I'm a ConvertKit user, it can be very attractive to think, oh, maybe I should promote ConvertKit. They've got a really great commission program.
But as soon as you do that and you, your audience of, let's just say, for example, I have a blog that's to women in abusive relationships about how to improve their relationship with their husband. And then I come out and say, by the way, click here and I can get you a free trial of ConvertKit. Right? I've just lost all credibility. So you have to be really careful with affiliate income about what products and services you recommend. But that said, ConvertKit is a good example where if th this is my, one of my favorite examples because I love the company, I know many of their staff, but also they give you a 30% recurring in commission. So there are people that I refer to sign up for ConvertKit over a year ago and every single month ConvertKit sends me 30% of whatever they pay. And actually the, uh, the CEO of Lifeway, his marketing director who runs the CEO of Lifeway's personal blog signed up convert to, through ConvertKit through my link. And so every month I get like 150 bucks just from him, just from his account, because he's got such a huge email list, like just as an example. Like, and I share that not to brag, but because I want you to understand that the potential of this. Affiliate income for me last year was roughly 25 to 30% of my total income from the year was just from affiliate products. Okay, so the pros and cons, right? Pros, I already mentioned, high quality product, no overhead cost, right? I get 30% every month. Now, out of, now, that means ConvertKit gets the rest, so they get 70%. And they have to figure out how to break down that 70% to make sure that they cover all their development costs, all their software costs, and all of their, um, you know, their taxes, and then their profit. <coughs> they have to worry about all that. I don't. I just have to worry about getting them customers. And then I get to just keep my 30%. Now, the downside is that is limited profitability, right? Because if I sell my own products or services, I can make more than 30% of a profit margin if I'm being smart. So there is a downside to it, um, and which is why I think it's, it's important to consider that when you're introducing this into your business model. And then you also, you do have a limited control. And a, a key example of this is actually one of the most popular affiliate programs for bloggers is Bluehost. Now Bluehost is a web hosting platform, if you're not familiar with, that you can sign up for, you can get an account, you can install WordPress, you can get a blog. It is a pain to use, it is a slow service, it is bad. But they have a good affiliate program. So bloggers, and I will say, most of the people who are most well known for promoting Bluehost today have been promoting Bluehost for years. And they used to be decent. They were never the best hosting company, web hosting company in the world, but they used to be pretty good. And so people started promoting them like crazy, making a lot of money, and basically, at some point, including that in their, in their annual budget. I know a blogger who will remain nameless, who lives in the Franklin area, who last year made $40,000 from promoting Bluehost, right? Like that's, that's huge, that is insane. But over the time, Bluehost has, their service has, has gone downhill. The speed of websites on Bluehost has gone down. The customer service has become abysmal. Uh, I was at an event several weeks ago where um, we were talking about blogging and that kind of stuff. And one of the people in the room, she had a problem with her website. And so they just were like, well, okay, let's just go ahead and get on the phone with your host. What host do you use? Bluehost. Okay, well, let's call Bluehost. They call Bluehost. They call the support line. They have 24-7 support. It says, hey, we're having this issue, issue with this website. And they say, we need to confirm your identity. She's like, okay, this is my website. Okay, can you confirm your payment credentials? Uh, I think the card I have in, uh, card on file is probably the one that's in like 4238. That's wrong. What's your address? Oh, um, it might be my P.O. box, or it might be my home address. Ma'am, it's not nice to try to hack into people's websites. Click. Bluehost hung up on her because they assumed she was a hacker on her own website. What do you do? Like, what do you do in that situation, right? 
So this is the state of Bluehost today. <laughs> What'd you say? Hack into your own website. Hack into your own website. That's, yeah, that's probably what I would do at that point. And so they're to the point where, you know, seven figure bloggers who are promoting Bluehost are traveling to Bluehost's headquarters to try to talk to their team and say, hey, how can we make your customer support better, right? And they, come out of that, they may come out of that meeting excited. Um, they'll post on Instagram and say, I just left their headquarters. Good things, guys. We had a good talk. This is real stuff that's happening. But the reality is they have limited control. And so this is a serious downside to affiliate income because there comes a point where you have to decide, is it worth it, right? So any uh, questions or thoughts about affiliate income before we move on to the next? So um, here I refer to this category as downloadable products. People call them digital products. I feel like that's a little broad and so I try to be more specific here, but this third revenue stream would be downloadable products. So in this case, this is a picture of an ebook that a friend of mine, Heath Paget, wrote called The RV Entrepreneur. Build a business anywhere. And he literally travels full-time in an RV, and he, his, him and his wife's blog at heathandalyssa.com, they write about that journey. So the benefit of downloadable products, and they were, at least in the early days, like I guess, I think they were the most popular, I would say, um, way to get started monetizing a blog, right? You self-publish a book, you, put to, you, write up a, some, you write up something, you send it to some service that makes it into a PDF, you get a guy on Fiverr to design a cover for five bucks, and you've got a product, right? Now, this, I mean, that's the part of the pros there, this simple execution, right? It doesn't take a lot of work. It's a little overwhelming when you haven't done it. But when you sit down, you can block out a weekend or a Saturday, and you can write, I mean, it doesn't have to be 100 pages. You can write 15, 20 pages, 8 pages of content that offers some sort of transformation to your audience. You can even repurpose old blog posts into an ebook, And then you can turn that into a downloadable product. Now, other examples I've seen of downloadable products that have worked decently well, and a lot of this depends on coming back to your target audience, what is the problem that you solve for them or you help them solve? So another example would be checklists that are related specifically, specifically to whatever you teach. For example, uh, I have a friend who runs a blog teaching people how to film um, video courses. And I don't know if he currently has, but he's talked about before like a checklist that he can sell on his website that's kind of like the, seven, you know, the 17 things you should do before every shoot that you go down, boom, 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 boom. I have another friend, uh, well, here's actually a great example. So Mike Kim, a friend of mine from MikeKim.com, he sells, on occasion he puts on a flash sale of his um, swipe files and copywriting templates. And so they're essentially like he has one that you buy for, I don't know, it's probably 50 or 100 bucks, somewhere in there. And it's a copy of a bunch of emails and proposals that he's used to get coaching clients or consulting projects. So that's a huge win because if you download that, you buy that, then all of a sudden it saves you time. It allows you to get clients you may not have otherwise, but it's a downloadable product. So simple execution, evergreen value, and that you can sell them on an ongoing basis, and that's considered kind of <coughs> normal. A huge con is that there's a low perceived value. It's really difficult to sell an ebook for more than 10, 15, $20. There are people that have done it for 100 and that's like, good job, man. You sold an ebook for $100. But that's still a fairly cheap product in the bigger scheme of things. So that's definitely a con. And also, they also can be time intensive. Um, now, some of this is a mind game because those of, us who, those of us who grew up with books, I'm assuming everyone grew up knowing, having books in their house or knowing what books were. So I don't know where I was going with that. But uh, books are kind of overwhelming, right? You see it on the shelf. It's got New York Times bestseller written across it. That person's name was on TV. So when you go to write, even if it's just an ebook, there's a huge mind game you have to overcome to make it, quote, good enough to publish. This example right here, the RV entrepreneur, 
I know for a fact Heath has gone through three versions where he completely rewrote the entire thing after it was for sale. And I think he just published the fourth. So part of that is a mind game because once it's out there, you're like, man, it's, like, it's, it's still digital, right? But it's, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's in PDF form. You can't edit that, right? So there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of stress with that where you have to go, man, if I change my mind about something, I have to go back and change it. So anyways, I think that's a real con and the time intensive thing is that people feel the need to go back and make sure it's kind of perfect. So but downloadable products, other than that, I think they're pretty straightforward and that they're ideally simple, downloadable. Something that you can download and that's it. Like not, and software I don't think would fit in this because software typically has some kind of either ongoing maintenance or cloud service or license key system. But something that you could download and the purchase is done at that point would fit in this category. Any thoughts or questions about that before we move on? Yeah. If you have a digital product that you want to, that you make a hard copy on Amazon, I think they do it with Kindle too. If you upgrade the version of it or you update it, like your friend did, I've updated my book like three times. Amazon will actually let all your previous client, previous buyers mm -hmm. know that there's an updated version. So there's there can be a benefit to that's that good. perfectionism. That's good. But I wonder. Well, no, no, that, that, I'll just leave it at that. That's good. I was just thinking like if I bought an ebook and then I read it and I felt pretty good about it and then I got an email that was like. They updated it, and I'm like, and then I got emailed again that was like they updated. It. I was like, well, crap, what did I buy? You know, like, you know, like, <laughs> what did I read? Was that the? So I think there, I think you got it. There are risks with that. And there's that. the free Kindle days on Amazon, so you can say, hey, updated it, gave away, giving it away for free right now, yeah. so you can curve that. But you're That's right, true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Little buyer's remorse when people. Yes. Okay, so online courses. Now this is honestly where I started. Now I actually like started. Long app, like I didn't start with any of the other stuff. Um, I think I, I did a little bit of coaching when I first got started, and I may have made, well, um, off of Bluehost probably, I made like 50 bucks or something when I first got started. But this is where I really jumped into online business head first, because the first time I launched an online course, it's a story that like Brian Harris and uh, who, of videofruit.com and Ray Edwards from, well, rayedwards.com, um, and others like to tell a lot, so I feel like it's told a lot, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it in case you've never heard it, but I um, created a course to solve the problem where people that used a specific WordPress theme called the Get Notice theme that Michael Hyatt's team had created. It was, it is and was kind of complicated and so I created a bunch of video tutorials basically just walking through the features trying to be helpful and I built up an email list of 250 people who were somewhat interested in it and then I did a launch and I had a full-time job at Chick-fil-A at the time. Um, and I did a launch and did, made $10,000 in 10 days. <laughs> no, and at the time, working at Chick-fil-A, I was making like 20, maybe 25,000 a year. So that 10,000 was really nice. So this was several years ago now, but from then I went around and launched that course again and again and made that course made $30,000 over the next year. And since then I've launched other courses and things like that, but uh, I learned a lot. This is where really like I went from kind of just toying around with it to being like, oh wow, I guess I have a business now. <laughs> I need to like file taxes or something. I don't even know. Like, what do you do? <laughs> so I think online courses. One of the benefits of them is that there is high perceived value. Um, even though like right now, as I'm talking, right, like my cell phone's on a little tripod here. We're recording a video, right? Super easy. It's literally a selfie stick. Like I hit play on my cell phone. Super easy today to create any sort of video and I'm just sitting here talking. But there's high perceived value because most people won't do it. Because most people will not sit in front of a camera and talk and actually speak confidently. Right? If they do, then there's a lot of like kind of like 
unspoken apologies. Like they start to talk and even if it's on like a live video, they're like, hey, I'm here talking about my thing. And you know, it's really cool. Like, you know, there's not that many viewers, but like it's totally cool guys. Like those of you that are here, you're really special. And like, I, you know, I, you know what? We're just gonna end the live video now. It's okay. You know, like, like people are uncomfortable in front of video. And so most people won't do it. And so there's a huge high perceived value with video. There's also high transformation in that I can, you know, stand up here or in front of a, or record a video teaching something and I can teach the exact same thing in a blog post and the exact same thing on a video, whether or not it's in a course. And if someone consumes both for some reason, they will remember and take action on the video if they consume both. Now, there are many benefits to blogging. I'm not saying don't blog, just to clarify, but, um, there is high transformation potential in videos. And in a video course, it's easy to, to create a success path of how you walk your students through solving some sort of problem in their life, whatever your, your, your cause, your target audience, whatever the problems are, walking them through in a video course, it's very easy to map out that content, uh, to record it on your cell phone, and then to publish it. Now the cons are, it is labor intensive, and that if you're gonna do it right, Actually, it can be cost intensive because if you are going to do it right, I mean, the biggest thing that you need to be concerned about is actually not the video quality because your phone's great. So if you have a smartphone that was made after 2015, in 2015 or later, like you've got a great camera, you're done. Audio quality though is not great if you're going to stand more than six inches away from your phone, which you probably should. So like you may have, there may be a little, a little bit of investment there in terms of a microphone and that kind of stuff. But as far as that, the biggest thing is labor and figuring out what you're going to say. Probably the first time you record videos, it's, you know, recording the video and then re-recording the video, and then watching the video, and then going and crying, and then recording a new video. <laughs> so like, there's a lot of, like, it's labor intensive, and there's lots of moving parts. Um, although on this last part, lots of moving parts, I will say, um, there has been a lot of progress in this recently. And then it used to be like, you know, when you launch an online course, you need, well, let's just say you're using a WordPress website. Well, you need a WordPress plugin that protects content so other people can't um, see it if they're not a member. Then you need a payment platform that has someone actually pay money that then triggers the other thing that controls membership. Don't write this down. This is not an actual strategy. This is what used to be. But, and, and, then it, and then behind all that, you need something that you need to host your video somewhere. And then you need to host, if you have any other content like text, you need to host that somehow. You need to somehow link all of that together with some way to communicate with your audience. Maybe it's a forum. It used to be really complicated. Um, and I created what I just described, like I created the really complicated version several years ago, and now I just use Teachable. I just switched over, everything over to Teachable. There's other platforms like it. Teachable isn't like the end-all be-all. There's Thinkific and um, several others, but it's, a, it's essentially an all-one platform that hosts your video and your quizzes and your text and, your, and accepts payment for you, and it handles all of that. So we'll say the lots of moving parts thing is becoming less of a reality, but it is still a reality. I, a couple questions I saw. Clark? Are you an affiliate? I am an affiliate for Teachable. So if you're going to sign up for it, you should go to meese.tips slash teachable. And I think you, you may get some kind of free trial offer with that or two. But yes, thank you for asking, Clark. Um, it's a, it's a, I just literally moved all of my courses over just in the last couple weeks on a Teachable. I'm really impressed with it so far. Um, did you have a question as well? I did. Um, and maybe this is too too deep, deep into it, but um, how do you know how much to charge for the course? It's a great, it's question. A great question. question. How do you know how much to charge for course. So um, there's a lot of philosophy on this, right? And so um, the kind of great way to start <laughs> that I don't recommend is like the only strategy, but one way to start is you get a dartboard out and you put a lot of prices on it and then you just, you just throw a dart. But I will say a lot of it depends on what niche you're serving, like what audience you're serving 
and what problem does your course help them solve? So from that, you can work backwards and that you need to create more value for your customer than what you're asking for in return. So this course, this example up here is a course I have called Project Launch Bootcamp. And it's me and two other friends of mine who both make money from their blogs. Um, and we, we actually, so Wes is a camera guy, so Wes Wages and Craig Jarrow are the other two. We, uh, we actually like, we rented, no, we did, I don't we may have done this in one of a guy's house or an Airbnb, but either way, we spent an entire weekend Wes brought all his fancy camera equipment out. We scripted everything in advance and we went through and we walked through what a strategy between all of us combined, what we knew about how, if we were to start over, how to accelerate the growth of your online business. So not necessarily teaching things about building, an, building a business from your blog that you wouldn't find somewhere on the internet, but saying, look, if you want the, the fast track, do this, do like steps one through 10, do this. And we gave examples and, and tactics in that the whole course. Now that's massively value. If someone goes through that and they execute on everything, they're going to shave a couple years off of their journey to building an online business if, if they were ever going to be successful in the first place without it. And by doing so, we're actually creating a way for them to make money, right? So honestly, because when you, if you're creating a product that helps someone else make money, it's really easy to charge more. So honestly, we could charge $1,000 for this course because of that. Now we don't because it's A, it's not my, not my primary source of revenue and B, I, I help mostly people who are just getting started with blogging. Most of them can't afford to throw $1,000 at it. So currently this course is $200, which I know is cheaper than it could be. So that's an example of kind of the pricing strategy of how I came up with that price. A lot, like a, if you're creating a course that's for example for, for an audience that is already a low income audience that doesn't have a lot of resources, or for example, you're teaching someone how to do something like couponing to try to get groceries or something like that, then you can charge a lot less. So there's two sides to it. I think one side is it is how much value can you create in their life? The second piece of it ties back to uh, what, like, what can they actually legitimately afford? And I will say like one philosophy that I've kind of used like roughly and then worked backwards on, but I don't think it's like a, I don't think it's ultimatum formula, is if you can kind of figure out, if you can put a dollar value on what the difference you make in their life is worth, then you can probably charge 10% of that. So like that's, that's a decent formula. Like I don't think it's like, it's the best formula I've ever heard or seen. But if you can like with my Get Notice theme course, I was basically comparing it to, you could pay a designer to create a child theme for you who could create a beautiful website and that would cost anywhere from three to $5,000. So I could sell my course for between $300 to $500 and it worked. That's what I did. But I mean, like I don't, I wouldn't use that as like the Bible. Like that's just kind of like a rough formula to get you started. So does that answer your question? Yes. Um, all right. So number five though is physical products. Now this one is obviously like, I think everyone knows physical products are a little bit of um, a jump in that there is, well, less so now than in the past, but there's still, there's still a lot of barriers. There are a lot of barriers to overcome to make, to create a physical product that is profitable. Now it's very easy to create a physical product. You can print your logo on a t-shirt pretty cheaply, but to actually make money from that, that's a whole other story. So I will say a couple huge pros of physical products is that they are memorable product and they have high perceived value. So this uh, journal, for example, has a much higher perceived value than a digital journaling app even though they have the same purpose, because it's tangible, there's, there's a higher perceived value. I don't think, I'm not gonna try to justify that or explain it, it's just true. The same thing goes with, a, you can have, I mean, you see this on Amazon, literally the exact same book 
if you want the physical product or the digital version. The digital version is you know, sometimes a third of the price of the physical product. And that's, that's considered normal. And even though it's the exact same text and the exact same pictures, right? Just because it's physical. So there is definitely a higher perceived value for physical products. It's very memorable. So if you're, uh, I actually put this as say, say the, the fifth revenue stream I would, in, I would introduce. At this point, if you're thinking, how do I create an experience where my audience is engaging with my brand on a regular basis, where they're thinking of my brand on a regular basis, that's a great time to introduce a physical product where you're trying to create more brand recognition. From my perspective, I think that's important because there is a low profit margin. And so you kind of have to have like another way to make it worth your time. And there is expensive overhead. So this example right here is the self journal. Um, now I, they were clients of mine for about six months last year. Um, they were a crazy success story who they launched a journal and literally it was just a, it has a template in it for helping you basically plan your goals and execute. But they launched this journal on Kickstarter. They did $300 $50,000 on Kickstarter and then they, while they were working with their manufacturers to actually print the journals, they put up a waiting list page where you could like pre-buy it basically and then they started selling, so, I mean, they, were, they were on track for $2 million in annual sales just off of like the pre-sale. So obviously like you can do well. Like last year, I don't know the exact numbers of how they finished last year but it was, it was good. I mean it was good. They were, uh, um, they brought on, they were, they brought on Damon John from the Shark Tank is like an advisor and he helps like, he's kind of the case study there on their website and that kind of stuff too. Like he loves it, pitches like crazy. Anyways, they went from being nothing to being a massive successful business focused almost exclusively on physical products. But that's based on scale. Like if you don't sell a buttload, you make no money, right? Because they make just a few dollars per journal now in profit because there's so much overhead in actually printing it, shipping it, um, so I will say like physical products are great. They can be a great business model, but low profit margin, expensive overhead. Um, any questions or thoughts on that one? I think that one's probably one of the more straightforward. Yes. Do you differentiate physical versus affiliate, like with Teespring, that kind of stuff? Hmm. That's a good question. I guess affiliate income you could have, I've never promoted physical affiliate products, although while I say that, I realized I promoted this journal before and they were technically an affiliate product. I think, Teespring is one way to introduce physical products and things like that. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think their business model is basically you can put a design up on their website and you can send people to it, but like anybody can buy the t-shirt and print it on demand. Is that correct? Yeah, it's print on demand, but it's actually your store. Oh, it's your store? Okay, yeah. So, no, I think like, I mean, I, I think having a physical product doesn't mean you have to be the one to produce it necessarily. So like there's a service called Printful, for example, where you can you know, design a poster or a checklist or something and you can link that to your Gumroad account and then on your website you just have a Gumroad buy button but every time someone buys it, Printful gets a notification, Printful prints it, Printful ships it. You could do that. That just means that you have even more, well, you don't have an overhead in that you don't have to pay for you know, a thousand copies of your poster up front, but they do take a significant chunk of your revenue just to, just as like a convenience fee basically. So, I mean, the downside is again, like low profit margin. Um, but I think, I think it's still a valid technique to use something like Teespring or Printful and something like that. Was that your question? Or yeah, just, I was curious how you, uh, how you distinguish. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about, I designed a poster once. I ended up just giving it, giving away the design, but I designed it once with like, with the intention of selling something like Printful. It just, at the end, it was just, you had to sell so many to make money versus selling like one course to make the same amount of money that I didn't end up pursuing it. But what I mean, obviously like best self's proven that you can do really well with it. 
at, at, a, at a certain scale. So, Okay, so the next would be live events. Now, I actually lump in two different sides of live events into this, in that one is you actually putting on a live event, and one would be public speaking, you're going to speak at live events. I think both of those fit into the same Obviously, there's a different way to execute. There's a different level of scale necessary, but there's huge high. There's high transformation with live events. I mean, this is an example. This is a free event, but you know, this is a live event where we're having a conversation. Where if you're just watching a video course, you can stop and say, "Wait, what about this?" You know, like you could go to a Facebook group and leave a comment, but it's not the same thing. This is human connection. So live events. There's a huge high transformation. There's high perceived value. It is labor intensive. It does have expensive overhead, but it can be done well and profitably. Keith Paget, who I mentioned earlier, I showed his book up here, The RV Entrepreneur. They just finished last weekend, The RV Entrepreneur Summit, and this is a picture from that. It was really, I mean, it's a fairly niche market, right? It's a, it is an in-person conference just for people who either, people who already travel in their RV full-time and are interested in learning more about how to either start an online business or continue <coughs> to grow what they already have. So this is not just like online business people, but like online business people who live in an RV or some sort of similar vehicle who like live on the road basically. And they, I mean, they sold out and they had, I think it was just shy of 200 people there um, in this event. And he's, I mean, a, he's a relatively new blogger. Uh, he's been blogging for a couple of years and, and they made a decent profit on this event because it was mostly him and his wife did most of the manual labor and then they, they found an RV campground that would take everybody and let them use the space for a discount and then they got sponsors like Winnebago to actually like sponsor part of the event and so they ended up make, turning a decent profit. I mean live events are an actual strategy for a primarily digital like online business brand. Now some of the, and of course when you, if you do a live event, most people start and Heath's no exception. Most people who start, who are interested in live events, do start by going to actually speak at other conferences first for a couple reasons. One, to get you experience on stage in front of an audience, but also it's a lot less overhead if you just have someone paying you to come to their event, then it's a lot easier than you having to coordinate the whole event. If you're interested in learning about speaking, I would say Grant Baldwin from thespeakerlab.com has the best training I've seen on, on like building a speaking business and getting your first speaking engagements. And then of course speaking skills are other, he covers that some, but there are other destinations for that. But specifically when it comes to like getting booked and paid to speak, which is the name of his course, this is actually booked and paid to speak, then I think that's a great resource. Any questions or thoughts on live events? No? Okay. So the seventh, the final, and in my opinion, the last revenue stream that you should introduce into your online business is software specifically because it does have massive high perceived value and ever great potential and actually uh, included in that the potential for recurring revenue um, is also involved with software but it is massively intensive when it comes to either labor cost if you are a developer or money cost if you're not a developer and you need to pay for one um, and there's ongoing overhead if you're creating software of some kind that the world of technology changes constantly you cannot create a piece of software and then it be quote done right? There will always be something you will have to update to make it play nice with other software. So this is notable themes. This is my software company and I'm not a developer. I co-founded it with the, with the best web designer developer I know. And we were, he was working on custom projects for people who use the WordPress, who use the Get Notice theme. And I had just created this course all about how to use the Get Notice theme. And we were both frustrated and thought that was a better way. And so we created this business that's now, I mean, a major focus of what I do, creating niche specific <laughs> WordPress themes to help people build their website. So WordPress themes and plugins. And then now we have, for, we have a monthly WordPress support service that includes hosting, things like that. So like we have, 
at this point we have both you know one time and recurring revenue and I like now I love it and I, I think notable themes is it's a great business model it's doing really well but I couldn't have done this three years ago um, the amount of ongoing weekly labor and work that goes into each product we sell is something that is difficult to manage from the start. Now, some people try to go around with this by getting investor money or VC, but I think that's really, I think you can do that. But I think it's a dangerous strategy because if you don't get profitability early on with the things that you can get most profitable on, you don't actually know that there is a market for what you're doing. So a great example of this, that isn't necessarily in the, per the personal brand space, but that is in the entrepreneur center space, is uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before um, Dart, uh, a local Nashville company declared, or they filed for bankruptcy, but they're, they're like the poster child of like the Nashville Entrepreneur Center of like a company that like came through the program and got a massive, like millions of dollars of like investor capital. And they were like launching their business and they're quote unquote <laughs> doing great according to like the startup metric of like, well, we've raised money, so we're doing really great now. And then they announced, well, our investors just weren't patient enough and wouldn't keep up with the fact that business is tough. So we're going to have to file bankruptcy to be able to fend off our aggressive investors that are wanting their money. Because we're not profitable yet, but of course we're not profitable yet, right? It's still early. I don't have that philosophy. I'm very much a bootstrapper. Like very much like you should be profitable from day one at some level. And if you need to accept investor money, it should be to scale what you're doing faster than otherwise, not to replace the need for profitability. I'm actually friends with the guys who run Dart Music. So like, like I'm not like, throwing them under a bus, but this is, I'm just quoting what they said in the Tennessean, but it is very dangerous to try to jump into something like a software company that has a massive capital without first going into the low-hanging fruit of online business revenue. Yes. Bearing in mind that most of the software that we all use uses that business model and was developed that way. Yes. So just caveat. Some. There are very few major software companies that were bootstrapped. Yes, but ConvertKit is an example of one, and Notable Themes is an example of one, and so there are uh, there are others. And I said, I think what there I'm saying, there's 37 yeah. signals, there's a bunch out there. Yes, yeah. want to make sure it's clear. If you're if you're going the software route, different conversation, different group, talk to people that do SaaS, it's a whole different thing. But if you want to be in the big time, there it that is the business. As much it as is, I like bootstrapping, right? It is a common business model, but I think I would take issue with saying that it is the business model, and that I think that there, I think there, I don't think there is a business in the world that couldn't exist without exceeding, taking on profitability early on. Now, what I didn't say was you should never accept investor capital. What I did say was you still need to find a way to be profitable at a small scale before you can justify trying to be profitable at a massive scale. Now, if that means you introduce a small digital product to try to prove that there's interest in your market, great. Dart is a company that sells now metadata services, right? There may be a massive demand for that, I don't know. But if they're struggling a couple of years in to achieve profitability, it may be because the market doesn't see the same need that they see in their mind, right? And so that's simply the point I'm making is that for, and from, from an economics perspective, like I do think you need to prove that you can do profitability on a small scale just to validate the market. Not to say that you should never accept investor capital, but doing that you have to do that knowing not just in your head that it's a good idea, but that people are actually willing to pay money for whatever solution you're offering. I think that's the difference. So you saying profitability or revenue generation? I said profitability, but I, I think it's, but it'd be fair to say revenue generation. I, I think what you're, well, can you, why don't you expand on what you're trying to say? 
with that? Yeah, so um, the, most of the technology-based business models are, are built around scale. Mm -hmm. So you have a company like Amazon. Um, sometimes they're profitable. Now more recently they are more so, but their business model doesn't work if there's 10 users. Right. And so they set sort of threshold. Of, if we pass this number of people, we can be profitable. Take Uber, right? Obviously they're losing 200 billion a year. But um, profitability is we've made more money than we've spent. Yes. Revenue is people are paying for what we're offering. Yeah, so but I think revenue yeah. is, a, is you have to have revenue. Yeah. You don't have to have profitability if that's the business model you're going after. Uh, fair, but I think it's a bit of a thing in Uber's case. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't approve profitability on a small scale by picking one city and saying, we got a drive, fleet of drivers, we want to make sure like people pay for this thing and then we can be profitable. I'm saying, like, you know, getting a separate conversation we could have, but okay, yeah. based on the development costs and based on, on what they have to do, nobody's done it in, in almost any of the major the major players. So. Eventually, gotta make money, right? Like Wait, what? Like Facebook. Like Facebook. <laughs> yeah. You gotta eventually make money, right? And revenues don't count, to Google, be honest. Google, Facebook, Like, for the most part, in. if you're spending more than you're making, you know? It, 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 at the end of the day, it gets you out of business. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think profitability yeah. is the number one, especially if you're talking having, like, a risk versus reward conversation with, pro with possible investors. Like, you've gotta know what's their possibility of getting their money back, making money, all that. Um, I mean, I'm an expert in watching the TV show Shark Tank, so I know. Um, but in general, like I feel like Business 101, like if you're not profitable on a small scale, yeah. it like for me personally, I would rather risk my own money to find out rather than having somebody else put their money in it because it's like you, you know what I'm saying. So, and obviously in the tech world and on a big volume level, it's it's a different conversation, it's a different industry, all that. But I feel like in terms of like entrepreneurs and building our businesses, if we're not looking at profits. I don't know what, what I, yeah. this, now this is my opinion. I feel like we shouldn't be owning a business if we're not looking at profits, at least looking at them. We don't have to be making them right away, but at least like aware of it. Cause that's the difference between a business and a hobby is if it makes money. Yeah. And I will want to say like, just to frame this conversation, reframe it again on like the focus here is like really on personal brand businesses. So it's true. There are software companies out there that so far have done well by losing millions of dollars every year. Um, and by some people's measure that is a success. But I'm simply saying like, if we're talking about how can we grow a blog and a personal brand, I think software can be a piece of that. But I think if you're coming from a personal brand perspective, then I don't recommend you try to do anything but bootstrap your business. And so, so I, just to kind of clarify, like that's, that's what I'm saying. Now, does, can you do it? Sure, I'm risk averse. I don't want to do that. Yeah, so notable themes were completely self-funded, bootstrapped it, bootstrapped. And um, well, in ConvertKit's example, I mean, now they're, they're a successful company, but I mean, they, they were not profitable when they first started, but what they did was the, the founder himself, he used his personal brand of selling eBooks and courses to fund the software company until they were profitable. And so I think you can do like that. If you're building out your product suite in this order, then you're, you're building out to the point where if and when you ever get to software, you already have other products that you, you can sell fund. You, can, you don't have to be profitable on the software to be profitable on the business model. And I think that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. So this right here is a, an example timeline of what I would recommend um, when it comes to if you were to execute any of these. Now you don't need, like going back to what I said earlier, you don't need to execute, you don't need to have all seven revenue streams in one business to be successful. Now an example of a business that has all seven would actually be Michael Hyatt's business, michaelhyatt.com. So he's an example of someone who has some, something in all seven of these. 
but you don't have to have all seven to be a successful online business. However, I would recommend you go in this order. And if you're going to try to execute on any of these, the soonest I would recommend executing any of them is in this order. I would launch with paid services, and then within a month, I would pick at least one affiliate product that I was going to recommend to my audience to help them solve their problem. Now, what I don't recommend doing here is then going out and finding 100 different affiliate programs that all are somewhat related to your topic, and then filling every blog post with links. A, that will annoy your readers. B, it won't be successful, I know, because I've tried it. And C, <laughs> it won't be successful. <laughs> so it's better to pick, a, pick one product or two that makes sense for your audience and recommend those and really focus on those. So in my case, that became ConvertKit. Um, I've recommended other products. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, Clark asked earlier about my, my affiliate link and I knew it off the top of my head. That's not a mistake. I know all of my affiliate links off the top of my head. Um, I make a lot of affiliate income. But downloadable products that I would put in there, I would put within the first three months, I would launch my first downloadable product of some kind of ebook, checklist, worksheet, whatever it may be. And then I would introduce an online course in the first six months. Now that doesn't mean you need what my first online course was, which was 70 videos. <laughs> like I would never do that again. But you live and you learn. I would launch my first online course with maybe like five, you know, five videos all less than 10 minutes long. Because the value is not on the, sa the sales pages that, that open with, we have seven hours of content. What that says is you will never go through our whole course. What you need to do is you need to focus on the value you give to someone. You can, and in Project Launch Bootcamp, which I described to you earlier, and it's an incredibly valuable course, and we've had many people go through it. I don't know the number off the top of my head. But each video in there is less than 15 minutes long. And there are only, I think, 14 videos. The value is not in the length. So I would launch my first online course in the first six months. The soonest I would launch a physical product personally would be within a year. And then live events or a public speaking um, shortly after that. And some of this comes from my experience now running a software company. But I wouldn't recommend, if you're going to go down the personal brand route, I would not recommend introducing software into your business model until two years down the line. Now, the only exception I would make here is if you are a user experience trained developer. In which case, sure, you can do it sooner because you can do it by yourself. But um, if you are not a user experience trained developer, then I would make that the last revenue stream you consider. So, so that right there is an overview of the seven different ways that uh, you can build, you can monetize your blog using a personal brand. Uh, at this point, I'd love to uh, turn, there isn't a microphone, but turn the microphone over to you to uh, take this into a deeper discussion about any questions you have about this and then we'll, t we'll t go from there into spe specific examples and ideas about how we can execute on these. So before, um, before I close down the slides, are there any other questions about, specific about the presentation? Okay. Yes. I think a, uh of course, as far as affiliate income goes, yeah. uh, say you come across a product that you probably target ones that you want to approach, right? Mm -hmm. How does that conversation go? Oh, that's a great question. So how do you, let me just rephrase, make sure I understand. So how do you, how do you approach a company about an affiliate relationship once you're interested? Mm -hmm. uh, so I have a th three step. I'm saying that, but I'm trying to remember what the third one is. So um, when I pick a product, now I will say, like, I try to, I try to work backwards and that I don't look for affiliate programs first and then decide what I'm going to do. Like if like some people like to go on like websites like Share, Sell and Commission Junction. You can just like look at a directory of affiliate programs and like find ones on your niche. I prefer to start with, okay, what is the best or the or the one that I use of whatever this product or service is that my audience also needs. 
And then from there, I'll usually start by actually just Googling like whatever their name is, like in this case, Teachable, and then affiliate program. If nothing comes up, I'll search Teachable referral program because they use a lot of the companies use those terms interchangeably. Now you will find some websites will have something that will show up very prominently in Google or something like that where they have a page <laughs> describing it. Uh, many of them don't. The next place I'll check is typically the footer of their website where they have like, you know, a lot of software companies or any other products, like a lot of product companies include like, you know, 20 or 30 links in their footer of just like all the things they don't know what to do with. And affiliates is sometimes in there. So that's a good place to find, um, find out. If not, I'll just email them and say, um, hey, I love your product. I'm planning to, you know, I'm, or I'm considering featuring your product in a future blog post or podcast episode. Do you have, an, I thought I'd check, do you have an affiliate program or referral program? Now what you don't have to do in that email is either justify yourself or try to make yourself sound like an awesome opportunity. Because that is what immediately flags you as an amateur. If you start going like, do you have an affiliate program? Because like, I'm gonna promote you like crazy and like I've got like, got like more fans than just my mom. And you know, like if you start like trying to justify like, you know, I've got a decent email list, okay? Then you'll, I mean, you might just, you might get a polite reply that's like, yeah, here's our affiliate program. Or you might just get like, we're not interested. But if you just confidently say like, do you have an affiliate program or referral program? I'm considering featuring your company right? Then nine times out of 10, you'll get a response, a positive response. Now, positive response doesn't necessarily mean they have one. Like sometimes I've had companies before say, well, we don't technically have one, but I can set up a coupon code just for your audience. And then we could, you know, see what happens. And if you guys start getting sales, then I'll pay you money. I'm like, okay, I can do that. You know? And sometimes, um, and sometimes they do have one that's very public. Like ConvertKit's affiliate program is very well known and well marketed. Um, and that's like their, that's one of their primary marketing strategies is their affiliate program. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Cool. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you all for your patience. And let's, uh, I'm just gonna shut this down, but let's, let's, let's talk. Would you believe that it's possible to build your online business in just a few hours each week, even if you already have a full-time job? Think about it. What could an extra 500 or $1,000 a month mean for your family? What would be possible if you doubled your household income one year from now? I am living proof that this is 100% possible, and I want you to experience that same success. You can get a crash course in online business strategy today by joining Project Launch Bootcamp, an online training program I've developed with a couple of other friends who also make a living from their blogs. You don't have to do this alone. In fact, if you join today, I will meet with you one-on-one -on -one for coaching free of charge. You may even be featured on this show. Join today by heading to projectlaunchbootcamp.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Unleash Your Blog podcast. We hope you got a ton of great information out of it. Perhaps the gears are spinning in your head right now, coming up with new ways to implement the different sources of income John discussed. You can go to unleashyourblog.com to view an archive of this show and listen to every single episode we've ever done. And while you're there, you can also download John's action guide, free of charge, that will help you shape the path your blog or business is currently on. Trust me, I use this action guide myself. It's super useful. Until next time.